Welcome to the Classic Anglican Podcast. Join us as we explore classic Anglicanism through thoughtful and informative conversation within the bounds of the Christian faith once received. I'm your host, Canon Zachary. The Reverend Canon Dr. Marshall McClellan is the Canon Theologian for the Jurisdiction of Armed Forces and Chaplaincy and currently serves at the Pentagon on the staff of the Air Force Chief of Chaplains. Canon Marshall, it's great to have you back on the Classic Anglican Podcast. Well, thank you, Kenneth Zachary. It's a thrill to be here and to share and to learn together. And it's an honor and sacred privilege today. So thank you uh, for this opportunity. Well, we're thrilled to have you here. And today we're talking on the topic of capital punishment. And we didn't simply pull this topic from thin air, but we are responding to a need amongst our clergy. So, Canon Marshall, what precipitated this conversation? Well, thank you. You know, as you know, uh, when people uh, are on the Canterbury Trail and seek holy orders in our jurisdiction, they complete a series of theological, moral questions. And as canon theologian, I review and give assessment uh, for these applicants. I, I started in 2012 and uh, and uh, fulfilled that commitment through 2016 when I was overcome by other events and uh, and handed it off and then have received that responsibility back in 2020. So uh, six years uh, reviewing theological uh, statements. Um, the one thing that people really struggle with in terms of how the, to articulate, how to understand, and how to frame uh, the, their moral and ethical thinking has been around the issue of capital punishment. Uh, it, it's been very conflicted. And so uh, it's, it's an opportunity to uh, I th- take this opportunity to really begin to think deeply from a classic Anglican perspective on these issues. So that's, that's kind of why uh, this came to the fore. And, uh, and for me specifically, it's a larger issue because I, you know, I love our, our civic warriors, our, our law enforcement folks, and I love are uh, those folks that are in the criminal justice system as inmates. Uh, I started back in 1983, graduated from the police academy in Gainesville and worked as a reserve police officer. Uh, I was striving to become a full-time police officer, but God had other plans. And it was actually a, a call I resisted uh, for a while. Uh, then I finally gave in to the Lord and, uh, and became uh, a, a, and left the police department and started working towards my college and seminary degrees. But when I came back to the clergy in Florida, uh, I grabbed the opportunity to become a police chaplain for the city of Auburndale. So I did that. I also was a police chaplain in during seminary as uh, for the Durham County prison for a year and a half. Uh, I walked among inmates and worked with them. Then uh, after working with the police department in Florida, I've worked with security forces in, uh, in deployed locations, the largest security force group in, uh, in, in the United States, Air Force. I worked for them up in Montana. And then uh, I also worked as a chaplain for the Valverde County Sheriff's Department, which was, uh, it, it's really in the news now, in Del Rio, Texas. So with a, I worked with the Border Patrol, with the police, uh, the Sheriff's Department, down there for four years. So 
that side of law enforcement loving our civic heroes, our warriors uh, trying to take care of us in the in society. But I've also love our um, our inmates, folks that are really in places, dark places. And so I've I've also worked in Kairos ministry, which is a it's a, a ministry uniquely designed to help people in prison come to the Lord uh, to further their walk with Christ and be transformed and not and not recidivize into the back into back into uh, um, lawless activity. So so from both perspectives of that, I have a personal stake of loving our civic warriors, of caring for those that are in the prison system. So from a theological perspective, I, I have a, a desire to help, but also uh, from a, uh, a practical perspective of ensuring our, the justice for our, uh, our society. So that's how I come into this. Uh, so there's a way for us to do ethics from a Reformed, Catholic, biblical perspective. One might even say that there's a way to do this from a classic Anglican perspective. Let's start where we always start as classic Anglicans, Holy Scripture. What does Scripture say about this issue? Right. Thank you. Yeah, as as classic Anglicans, we look to Richard Hooker's uh, criteria in, in our theological investigation. Holy Scripture, that is the foundation. That's the root. That's the direction. And we look at patristic tradition that helps us to have that lens to which to understand and interpret and operationalize. And then we look at reason as the mechanism by which we make those connections and informed decisions. Reason as opposed to affect or feelings. Reason becomes the 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 way we are able to bring scripture and sacred tradition together. So, um, so as we look at scripture, we're talking, you know, for the foundation of, of the old Testament, um, we find very quickly in, in um, Genesis uh, from an old Testament perspective that, uh, that God did, Originally, I, I, I assume, we, we're guessing from the first two or three or four chapters of Genesis, that God maintained the authority to adjudicate all crime, you know, to, to govern us as human beings, got personally involved between Cain and Abel and adjudicated that. But also we know from chapter, chapter 6 of Genesis that, that he adjudicated the crime of the century which was, you know, as we read in Holy Scripture there, that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the hearts, uh, of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. So the Lord said, I will blot out man that I have created from the earth. So, so God uh, convicted, adjudicated, and determined to provide capital punishment for criminals, which happened to be everybody. We, we, we all were that. So God himself adjudicated the guilty there. But uh, what we also know is that at the moment of, of Noah and the coming out of the ark, uh, that God took a turn in this situation, that he made a covenant with Noah that he would not adjudicate crime this way, that he would not bring a flood on the earth. And we, we recognize that, that wonderful symbol that we call the rainbow, 
uh, Hebrew more accurately calls it a bow, uh, which actually, you know, we think of it in kind of the unicorns and skittles beauty, but in Hebrew, it really is a weapon of war. It is a weapon of punishment. And so God was literally laying kind of his weapon of war up in the sky, and, and, and he says to Noah, and he makes a covenant that he would not do that again. But then he also says, just after that in chapter 9, he said that, that from now on, that by man's blood, or, or that man, if a man's blood is shed, by man shall he be punished. So uh, literally, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. God, for God is, uh, made man in his own image. So literally, God was delegating at that time the adjudication of crime to, to humans, that that he had done it in the past, that this was the result, because everybody's guilty. But from this moment on, there's a turn that he delegates to human authority the responsibility to adjudicate crime. And then he says in verse 5, and for, and, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning. For the life of man. So from man. So there's that delegation of authority to to human institutions to to provide civic responsibility to protect the weak, to adjudicate crime. So so you see right there, and of course we know from all the Old Testament, we see consistently that God delegated the authority. We see this in Israel. We also see it in uh, in the prophets where where in, even in Assyrian Babylon, where God actually used um, pagan uh, governments to adjudicate crime. So, Ken and Marshall, that I mean, that's fascinating, and I, I'm sort of wondering my, myself: How does this line up with God's sovereignty? Does he does he abdicate that when he's doing these things? That's a great question, uh, Ken and Zach. Because no, he does not. That God does delegate civil authority. Uh, to, to civil governments to adjudicate crime, but he maintains his sovereignty and he maintains accountability. He is the king of the universe. He is the judge of all creation. And his delegation does not take away the human responsibility to be a part of the process and to be accountable to him for every decision made. And as we'll talk about later, that is where it comes back to that these who work in civil governments are directly accountable, which is why in the New Testament they're called ministers. Let me illustrate that, how, the, how you not only had St. Augustine of Hippo, but also the Anglican reformers that, that we'll later talk about that discuss it. So listen to this prayer in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer that in the morning and the evening office— this is a prayer that was to be prayed, should be prayed, for those in civil authority. Listen to this, and you're going to hear that interplay of delegation and responsibility to God. So listen to this. Almighty God, whose kingdom is everlasting and power infinite, have mercy upon this whole land and so rule the hearts of all in authority. And then it says especially, and then you, you could name who those are, that they— knowing those min whose ministers they are, they're God's ministers, 
they may above all things seek to honor and glorify that we and all people duly considering those authority or whose authority they bear may faithfully and obediently honor them according to thy blessed word and ordinance through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit. So you, you see that interplay between these are God's servants, and yet they are accountable to his almighty honor and glory to be worthy to serve him in accordance with the blessings of Christ. So you see that interplay for God's divine purposes. And so what is it that when our guys are taking the canonical exams, what are some of the things that that we're struggling with along this vein of conversation? Um, what we're talking about here, when, 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 we, when I look at those theological uh, reviews, uh, is the realization, especially in the Old Testament, and we'll look at the New in a minute, is that, that there is a distinction between the private, private ethics and responsibilities of a person to be moral, to be ethical, to have uh, godly behavior. And there is the responsibility of the public ethic, which is kind of that civic responsibility, the civic societies delegated from God to adjudicate crime, to protect the weak, to protect the private citizen uh, from the next private citizen who might want to do them harm. That there is that, that dual responsibility that God governs. So we see this clearly in the Old Testament, and, and actually Aristotle later talks about this, and we'll talk about St. Augustine of Hippo. But we, you and I, understand this intuitively. So, so for instance, years ago when I was a kid, my, my dad got us motorcycles, myself, my brother, my, and my, my father, and we were all riding motorcycles. Uh, we had uh, – they were stolen. We were called one day by the police department, the sheriff's department, and uh, they'd found one of them, mine, and we went out into the woods, and we got that motorcycle. As we were driving out with it on a trailer, and the police department was uh, – the sheriff was driving in front of us, we saw my father's motorcycle driving by. So we took off after <laughs> – my father-in-law and I, or my stepfather and I, took off after this guy. He went into the woods. We jumped out of the truck. We tracked him down. He ran out of gas, so we grabbed him. Now, at the moment of grabbing him, let's think about that. Is it my responsibility to to take this guy into custody and and put him in my jail, maybe my closet? And for several years, feed him, you know, and, and make sure that he's adjudicated, make sure that he's repentant and make sure that uh, that he has paid his debt to society. Or do we instinctively know that there is a civic a civil responsibility for law enforcement to do that? Right. That 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 that's not my ethic. That's not my role and responsibility. That's the role of civic government to provide that stability and to come and take that individual and to adjudicate them for stealing. Now, later on, you know, obviously we forgave and that kind of thing. Uh, he was adjudicated. It turned out to be a, a, a kid that was in school with us years, you know, years before. But, but we intuitively know that it's not a, the private individual's ethic 
to adjudicate crime, that there is a God-delegated civic responsibility of authority to do that on our behalf. So, so we, we instinctively know that, uh, that God has established those authorities. So that's kind of the Old Testament uh, as, as, we, as we see it. And if, if you've studied anything about uh, covenants and cutting covenants, one of the things that is done is the exchange of weapons. And, and mm-hmm. so, you know, God has placed his bow in the sky uh, and then uh, delegated that responsibility to humanity to be able to, to keep, those, keep those laws. And so it's a, it's a fascinating study of covenants. If you get a chance to do that, take it a little bit deeper. Right now, we're going to transition and talk a little bit more about the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, you and I did not go to fundamentalist seminaries. You and I were not educated in a fundamentalist manner. We were both educated in higher criticism uh, within uh, what was then considered sort of a, a classic liberal approach to theology that has since gone over the edge into a modernist or postmodernist type of theology at those institutions. But you and I were, were not schooled in, in necessarily uh, a fundamentalist approach. So, uh, you know, when we come to this and we're talking about this, I think it's important for our listening audience to understand that you, you and I, um, you know, we, uh, there's a fine institution called Bob Jones University, but you and I didn't go there. We weren't formed and shaped there. We were formed a little bit differently. So when I ask this question, people will understand where where we're coming from, from a standpoint of, uh, you know, we we are not somehow not thinking about the totality of how this works. But when I was in seminary, there was quite the effort to place many Old Testament passages, especially those that have to do with capital punishment, into the same category as the kosher laws. So does the New Testament enliven and further explain or expand on the topic, or should Old Testament texts about capital punishment be considered like, uh, you know, when we find mold in someone's house and we call the rabbi or uh, mixed fabrics for Christians? Right. Yeah. And there are there are places, there's several places in the Old Testament that those laws were prescriptive for Israel. Um, but well, the way we can make that distinction is because uh, the, in the New Testament, God, the son or God, the Holy Spirit in Acts and in through the writings of the apostles, they articulate those those either enlivening that ethic or. Or, or, or marking it as prescriptive for for Israel and the Old Testament, which which would be like kosher laws and those kinds of things. So so let's walk through how the New Testament understands that. Because when when I when I read a lot of the aspirants that are seeking Anglican holy orders, their their determination is yeah Jesus did away with that. You know that. That we're supposed to forgive now. That's Old Testament. That's Old Testament law. And just like kosher laws, capital punishment and adjudication of crime to the point of of capital punishment. Jesus, you know, wanted us to forgive our enemies. You know, and and usually I they, they cite you know that the capital punishment's off the table. Jesus did that. Uh, told us, you know, I say to you, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, but do not resist someone who's evil. Um, and th- what they don't recognize is 
what they've just done is which that's a pers a personal private ethic that they've just jumped from the private ethic to the public ethic. And and so as we as we look at this particular scriptures, uh, a lot of people will cite the love for your enemy, which is awesome. Please do that uh, as as a private citizen. Uh, and sometimes they'll even add the argument of you know Jesus in the temple courts, and there's the 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 couple of the Pharisees, and they throw the woman caught in adultery at at, at his feet and say, hey, you know, should we stone her? You know. So, is it possible? Let's pause at this for a moment. Is it possible that Jesus in this teaching is dismantling civil civil jurisprudence? Is he completely uh, dismantling, you know, civil justice for how crimes are adjudicated? And and of course, is that a crime? That's that's what we have to ask. Um, or is it possible that Jesus was in these other issues dealing with very particular circumstances in their context? Because in the Old Testament, we have that public ethic exercising justice, and we have the, the private ethic, the eye for an eye, the tooth for a tooth, which you know is God's way of trying to mitigate an overreach of escalation of violence between one person and another. So um, you also notice that the eye for an eye and the tooth for a tooth did not also say life for life. So it was really that was really more about private retaliation so within its context. So there's a little bad scholarship there when, when people use that. Um, so Jesus' actions and words are really addressing the private individual and how they and how they are you know how they're set to respond. Uh, and, and a lot of people don't pick that up. And so um, what we've got that scripture indicates and in, in when Jesus says this, when he says, but I say to you, that's it. That's actually a personal pronoun. That's actually he's talking to individuals and the context of the woman caught in adultery uh, with the religious leaders uh, uh, is that they're using that woman as a tool to trap Jesus. That's that's not Jewish law, Jewish lawyers with an official court of impartially adjudicating both the woman and the man caught in adultery. There's, they're not witnesses. This is not a solid case. This is, this is something different, very different. It's all, that, that's about trying to trap Jesus and using the woman as a tool. That's not about dismantling public jurisprudence. And that's all the private ethic issues. Now, uh, as we proceed further, we find St. Peter and St. Paul upholding civic governments in the exercise of justice, protecting the weak, deterring wickedness, punishing criminals, even to the point of the sword. In fact, St. Paul even says, uh, and he calls Roman leaders, Roman law enforcement officials, these pagans, he calls them servants of God. And he says in Romans chapter 13, starting at verse 1, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. But there is no authority except from God. See, this goes back to that delegation of authority. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. For he is the servant of God for your good. These are pagan. That's a, that's a Roman governor. 
that, that this goes back to that delegation to civic authorities that God gave in the Old Testament, we see it, is restated exactly in the New Testament. And then he goes on to say, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword, the, the uh, instrument of capital punishment, in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So, uh, so Paul, right here, is... Is was he disagreeing markedly with Jesus? Is the Holy Scripture Holy Scripture? No, he was. Jesus never dismantled capital punishment. He never dismantled the responsibility of civic governments. The, the times when he was speaking, he was speaking to the private ethic of how people care for and treat each other. I, I can't think of a moment where Jesus was critical of Rome, mm -hmm. but he was certainly critical of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You know, it, it, Jesus, you're absolutely right. He, he, he could have at any moment condemned the circus or the gladiators or slavery in Rome or any number of different things that we see as institutional horrors, but he was much more focused on cleaning up the house of Israel first and saying that these things you are doing that are hypocritical and wrong and uh, need to be changed. And you don't see him rail against certain things because many of these things, like the upholding of the rule of law, of making sure that criminals are punished, making sure that mothers and daughters can walk down the street unassaulted to go to the market, things of that nature that were part of Pax Romana were also, you know, there instituted by Almighty God. And so one of the things that we can say is that out of Jesus' silence about these things and through the power of the Holy Spirit, the uh, pronouncements that are given through Paul and Peter is that there is synergy there and there there is um, agreement there between Christ and his apostles, is it not? That's, well, he, Jesus actually does comment on that. He says when he's standing before Pilate uh, in John, John covers this this conversation that uh, that he that that Pilate says as Jesus is standing there, you know, in his uh, you know it, it, about to be crucified. He says so. Pilate says to Jesus. Do, do you not know – do you not want to talk to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you or authority to crucify you? And what does Jesus say to him? He said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. This is that delegation of authority, and this is that – that sense that Jesus is in the sense, and this is a pagan Roman governor, that Jesus is saying, you've been delegated this authority. So it's, it's there, and, uh, and, and we, it's important for us, you know, once we get to the other end of this, this rubric of understanding theological positions, whether we as individuals come out on the, on the, the side of, do I agree with capital punishment or do I not agree with capital punishment, it, that, to me, that that was that's never the issue. It's how did you get there? You know, it's 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 kind of like like the mathematician. Okay, you got the answer that you have. Show me your work. And 
Holy Scripture, Old and New Testament, both both hold that capital punishment is within the rights of civil authority as delegated by God as God's servants. And, and, stated, and stated very plainly, and that still is in harmony with vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So as a per- personal ethic, we, we would be in agreement that it is not, just like you're in your illustration with the motorcycle, it is not our job to go out and be vigilantes. It's not our mm-hmm. job to go out and execute vengeance on someone, which is different than self-defense, but executing vengeance on someone, um, that has been delegated to, like you said, civil authority. And so there is harmony there in that. But, you know, like you said, how did you get there? What was the work to be able to get there? And there may be some people that we disagree with on how they got to their outcomes, but we could have a great deal of respect on how they got there into those outcomes. And there is where we can have a conversation. So, Canon Marshall, one of our hallmarks, obviously, as Anglicans, is our submission to Holy Scripture. But we don't encounter that scripture in a vacuum. We interpret Holy Scriptures in concert with a great cloud of witnesses. How did the early church fathers understand the death penalty and even uh, operationalize it? Well, it, and that that's an exploration that uh, one of the one of the persons that we naturally go to to look at this is St. Augustine of Hippo. And the reason I, I know it's it's later in the third, fourth century, but the reason is because he was such a great Christian philosopher who well, who was the pioneer that welded together the biblical and theological guidance and uh, how civic authorities work and, and how nations work. And so if you've read his book and great work, City of God, I just finished it this past uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, again, uh, amazing work. He articulates that civil governments do exist to govern fallen man and provide a bulwark of human justice in a sin-sick world. And you may remember, he wrote City of God after the Goths had sacked Rome. So so Rome was in the midst of inner collapse. I mean, obviously, it, 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 our own society tends to be mirroring uh, what's, what went on with Rome. And, and so there had already been kind of a wholesale sacking of Rome. And so he was trying to make sense if prayerfully and faithfully for how do we, how are we as Christians understanding civil society? So he basically, and he talks about the fact that no government is perfectly just. It's, we're all far from, we are in a broken, sin, sick, rebellious world. But governments, you know, instituted of God and, and delegated authority by God do provide, to a greater or lesser degree, protection for civil society, uh, deterrence for the wicked, refining of, right, of the righteous, and punishment for the guilty. So St. Augustine's view is really that the state maintains order to keep a wicked man in check through the fear of punishment. Now, although God will eventually punish all sins, all sin will be adjudicated. The, for the, especially for those destined for a damnation, he states that 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 there are immediate punishments in a sense to get us to shake our reality and get us ready for that last judgment. That that there that the civil government provides a model of get your stuff right now or you're going to be adjudicated. That's kind of a mini model 
of what God will do in fire someday. And and so in in the early church, actually, Christians were persecuted. One of the reasons they were persecuted, they were called man haters. And I'm trying to I can't remember the Greek word for man hater, but they were persecuted because they talked about a coming wrath. And, and the wrath of God was coming, and, and we needed to prepare. And, of course, the optimal, what's the way to prepare? Repent, believe the gospel, and you shall be saved. But the wrath of God is coming, and so the, uh, the civil justice provided a imperfect, very imperfect, but a, but a model of get it right now. Get your life Together now because it's going to come, and I think we've lost the bubble on that uh, in society. And and as I read, um, that we've lost the bubble. That the reality is coming, and our job is to help people get ready to understand this. So, so that's what Saint Augustine was doing. Was trying to, to. He was also bringing in Aristotle's. He was bringing together the the Old Testament, the New Testament understanding of uh, of the private and public ethic, and Aristotle also. Uh, on the the secular side, kind of sensed that same dynamic of the difference between the private and the public ethic. So, uh, for many of us, especially in the military, we understand the, the just war theory. Remember that that uh, that was Saint Augustine. He developed that. Right. He developed the the just ad bellum, which is when are the times that are appropriate for a nation to defend itself. When are the times when it when it needs to go to war that are just? But he also developed the the just in bello, which is the once you're in war, how do you conduct that war? What are the just ways to to stay on the rails of righteousness to protect yourself as a nation, to protect yourself and your allies from an kind of an evil attack. And he developed that, but he developed that because he was also at the same time talking about the justice within a nation. So you have what's called the the up and out. The up and out is a nation adjudicating the crime of another nation attacking you. And how do you respond to that up and out nation attacking you? But he also developed the model of what happens for the down and in when you are a nation and internally you have crime. So you've got the up and out, the military, the just ad bellum, and the just and, and then the justice once you start fighting war, how do you conduct that war? We know that is LOAC in our in our current vocabulary. But you also have the 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 justice within, the down and in of how we conduct civil society. One of the things that sometimes perplexes me is you have people that are applying to be military chaplains. So they, they want to be a military chaplain. They, they, they're applying to the up and out. They're going to provide ministry to people that are going to war and putting their lives in danger. The problem is a lot of them object to capital punishment, which is the down and in. So they're going to provide capital punishment to the up and out guys that are coming after them, you know, coming after our nation, which is kind of the capital punishment on a mass scale, you know, um, but but oppose the down and in of capital punishment on the the one 
uh, heinous crime uh, of murder. You know, so it, it, it's a really interesting dynamic, and I think it all goes back to that loss of the bubble of the difference between the public and the private ethic. That that those two and many people today get muddled. They don't understand they, that that classic that classic ethical distinction between those two. So, but Saint Augustine did. And and he developed that. And then of course you got to ask, well, okay, that's that's in the three three forties, four hundreds, somewhere in there. Well, yeah, you, you also have Irenaeus of Lyons, two oh two, Tertullian of Carthage, two twenty, uh, Ambroister, uh, four hundred, Saint Chrysostom, uh, four oh seven. They all maintain the same perspective. In fact, uh, if you search their commentaries on St. Paul's teaching that we quoted earlier about, you know, that that the Roman secular governors are God's servants, even to the sword. They're quoting and affirming that that is still the responsibility of civil government. So so if you from scripture, uh, from the uh, early church patristics, uh, capital punishment is an appropriate for the public ethic and civil society. You know, if you look at John Chrysostom, as far as his ethic of treating folks for the poor, it's probably one of the most convicting things that you could ever read, because one of the things that he says is that if someone is begging in the street, uh, you give to them without any regard about what that individual is going to do with what you give them. They have asked, Mm -hmm. you have provisions, and as Christ has given to us freely uh, with, with... you know, the idea that we, you know, we may squander what God give, gives to us, right? But still God is a, a benevolent father and, and does these things. And and the forgiveness that we receive in Christ uh, freely offered, but at a great expense to, to the son. And so what, uh, you know, there's a guy that has a true understanding of compassion, Chrysostom does, one that's extremely challenging. And yet he understands that there is a need for uh, order in civil society and what God has delegated to the state. And so, you know, you've given some really good examples in this. One of the things that also perplexed me, the incongruity of someone coming into the military and yet uh, saying that they disagree with capital punishment. And we're not talking about someone who says, I personally couldn't participate in capital punishment. Okay, I've got it. I understand that. But when they're saying, no, institutionally, I don't believe in capital punishment. Uh, One of the books that we have in the Air Force is The Law and the Commander. And it gives recommended uh, sentences for certain infractions of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And one of them stopped me cold when I was reading through it one day because it was called Breaking a Safeguard. And it said, punishment, instant death. And I thought... (laughs) Wow, that's interesting because it's not, you know, because it would say, you know, trial, you know, it would say Article 15, uh, LOR, you know, non-judicial punishment, uh, you know, trial by court-martial, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And this one was breaking a safeguard, instant death. And so I had to Google what is a safeguard. That's a sentry. And when the sentry says halt and you're walking towards an asset that has to be protected regardless of the situations – uh, that sentry is given the power of the state to be jury, judge, and executioner of you instantly. That's the military you're joining. This is the the uniform code of military justice. Also, when you're joining the military, 
we don't operate by just war theory in the military. We, uh, we operate by just war doctrine. And so there, there is a doctrine under which we operate that is based on that theory, but we don't operate in theories in the military. We operate in doctrine. And so we, you are becoming a part of the profession of arms. And even though you and I as chaplains are non-combatants, uh, our, our chief of chaplains has a memo that forbids us from picking up weapons in combat. You and I still take the same oath to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And you and I, as airmen, also say in Airmen's Creed that we talk about the fact that we are our, our nation's century and avenger. When we heard that scripture, when we heard that from scripture that about um, uh, the, the state being the avenger uh, on, uh, in the will of God. And so uh, there is some incongruity there, and I think that is a reason why we need to stop and pause. Uh, there is a long tradition of pacifism. There is a long tradition of being against capital punishment. How you get there and under what circumstances and what ministry you're called to ha- is important. But we're talking about uh, chaplains to the police department, chaplains to civil authorities, chaplains to the United States military. And, and these are instruments of, of God's justice in this world. So we've talked about scripture We've touched on tradition. What about Reformed Catholic reason? What did the Anglican reformers have to say on the topic of capital punishment? Yeah, thank you. And and I love what you said about uh, John of Chrysostom. Is is that he was in in terms of the poor? He was talking very specifically about private your private uh, your private situation and caring for the poor. And then, of course, later in this particular quote about uh, about St. Paul, uh, he's talking about the public ethic. Um, in terms of the reformers, you know, our first, obviously, reformer, uh, Martin Luther, uh, he had an interesting take on this. Uh, he, uh, you obviously, you know, as, as he's trying to re- provide reform, the problem that he faced was that the church, which needed the reform, was in bed with the state. So they were pretty well welded together. Um, so what he did further, and, and actually the American colonies actually picked up on what he did and used it as a model, is they, he parsed out the public ethic. So he talked about the private ethic uh, as three hierarchies, the hierarchy of or what he called the state of the family, uh, which was private, the estate of the church, and then the estate of the government. Uh, Martin Luther, our, our first kind of um, shot heard around the world, uh, he parsed out the public and the private ethic a little further because the, the church was so wedded to the government. There was just too much cross flow, and that was where the corruption was coming in. So he parsed out uh, the, the ethic being the, the estate of the family, the estate of the church, and the estate of the government. And the state of the family is the place where, you know, a person are, is led by the, the, the parents uh, to inculcate values and, and you know, the, the private ethic in individuals. And then the estate of the church is that which forms Christ's ministry on earth, his faithful people under ecclesiastical leadership. And that's where the bishops and archbishops come in as the leaders of the estate of the church that lives out 
the body of Christ mandate on the earth. But then there's the estate of the government, and that encompasses that function of civic leadership again. So you see the organization of laws, the punishment of the wicked. Uh, the estate of the government is an established hierarchy ordained by God. In the in the English church, uh, on the you know in the on the island there, the uh, the English reformers didn't parse that out because you know the the king or the queen uh, was the head of the church, so they didn't they decided not to parse that out any further. Uh, in fact, in a homily against disobedience, uh, which we we I think we take from Jewish uh, from uh, John Jewell. He even talks about he uses uh, Paul's uh, Saint Paul's quote in Romans 13 uh, discussing the role of civic government. He actually quotes that uh, as as a key aspect of how we understand the role of government: punishing the wicked, uh, protecting the weak, uh, and and that our role and responsibility as the other two states, uh, as the individual or as the church. Uh, is to is to be obedient, is to follow. So in the American colonies, uh, we tended to pick up the founding fathers a little bit more, more of Luther's model, uh, which we kind of have today, rather than St. Augustine's model. But, uh, but the English Reformation maintained it. So if you read uh, the in the Book of Homilies, there, there are actually two uh, homilies, one that was done during the... Uh, the gunpowder plot uh, rebellion, and then one afterwards when they finally sub subdued all perpetrators, uh, both of them very succinctly state that the role of government is to adjudicate wrong even to the sword. Uh, they, they back that up. So the ethical confusion that I tend to find in applicants for holy orders, especially military chaplains, is kind of ironic in, in terms of that capital punishment of the down and in, but okay with the up and out uh, punishment. So um, based on this rubric, so we've got the, the Old Testament. Uh, the New Testament did not uh, – it continued uh, to hold these two public and private ethics. It did not repeal uh, in any way uh, the responsibility of governments. Uh, all the way through to the patristic tradition, the early church tradition, and then into the reformers. If you understand what we've just been talking about the last little bit, go back and read Article 37 of the Articles of Religion. The, the, the founders, the reformers, understood this distinction. They understood the private ethic to be compassionate, to forgive the guy that that uh, slapped you or the guy that insulted you or the person that cut you off uh, and not to hold grudges as an individual following Jesus. But that did not mean that the God-ordained role of civic government was somehow completely dismantled. So we've got two things going here. One, first, the scriptures uh, hold that, that God established and delegated to governments the responsibility to govern, protect citizens, deter crime, and adjudicate and punish the wicked, uh, even unto the sword if necessary. Such constituted civil governments have the responsibility to use the sword of a capital punishment 
uh, for heinous murder. They have, they're cleared hot, basically, is what they say. They don't have to, but they are cleared hot if they need to. Uh, neither God the Father, God the Son, nor God the Holy Spirit abrogated this charge, nor is it found abrogated in any uh, of the church tradition. So, uh, so from if you follow the line, which which we follow is good classic Orthodox Christian, Anglican Catholic tradition. Uh, we follow the Scriptures tradition reason. Uh, we follow the reformers. I mean, you, that's the kind of the only conclusion that you can come to that that it it is that God allows it. But but there's more to be said and. Uh, just like when Paul said uh, about you know eating eating food sacrificed to idols, you're you're cleared hot to do it. There might be times when you don't want to ethically. Yeah, so, let's let's so talk they, about that. So, as a final sort of perspective in the reason category, uh, that I think might also you know be helpful to folks. Um, when you and I were doing some of the pre-show prep, we we talked about um, in correspondence with each other the idea of some contextual considerations. So that's right. What might those be and how might they shape how we apply the biblical and ethical standard? Okay. Well, yes, exactly. It, the fact that, that God has delegated the responsibility to adjudicate crime uh, and to punish the wicked and to protect the weak does not inherently mean that, that, that a society has to, you know, it's mandatory. God said, you, you know, you can, you can use capital punishment. It doesn't mean that it has to happen that way. It really is up to the civil authority. And here's the other piece. They will stand before God. They will stand before God as, as having delegated responsibilities in their agency as law enforcement, as prosecutors, as defenders, as judges – they will stand before God with that level of responsibility as agents of a particular government for how they how they did that and and what they did. So so you know we have to allow them to to own that whichever way they they choose to go. The second thing is I would say is that that God is going to adjudicate um, uh, all people. In fact, it, it it's it's going to be the wrath of God is coming. And, and we tend to lose the bubble on that, is that, that the wrath of God is coming and the second death, punishment will be adjudicated on everybody. Uh, it's coming. And, and so our job is to prepare people for that. And the way we prepare for the, them for that is, is, is repent and believe the gospel. Because if you repent and, and believe the gospel, the power of God to save you from the second death, is is the key, and so we we tend to focus too much on, you know, the compassion for uh, for folks, which if they don't have that level of adjudication, they're not going to repent. So so you know that's a second consideration. Um, the, the third consideration I'd say is that we do need to think classically as Anglicans, uh, morally and ethical. Um, it's you know, I, as I've said, I've I've done these theological reviews six years, probably over 120, 130 people, um, and and of of like let's say 120 people, that's on the low end of 120 people, I can count on two hands the number of people 
who understood and articulated the public and private ethic. Ten people who, who knew that about the construct, the classical construct that was biblical. Aristotle talked about it. St. Augustine and Hippo talked about it. The reformers understood it. Ten people out of 120. Of, of, of all of that, I've had one person, one female permanent deacon, one that actually articulated the three estates of Luther. So, so this is, you know, this is, we, however we come to our decision about capital punishment, we need to understand from a classical perspective how you know, the larger picture of, of ethical and moral thinking. And, and fourth, I'd say uh, that, uh, that, yes, God delegated to, to civil authorities, um, and, and they are servants of the Lord. They have a direct commission from God uh, as ministers of God, literally Paul uses the word ministers of God to, and their task with, according to Holy Scripture, tradition, reason, reformers, they're tasked with a very big job of protecting society. I mean, the level of responsibility they have and that they'll be held accountable to is incredible. And we, we as, as citizens and as, as people need to, uh, need to support them. And, and love on them because they're fellow ministers, but their ministry is protecting people. They are ministers and agents of God to to watch over us. It, it, while we're asleep in our beds, they're out on patrol protecting us uh, from uh, from danger and harm. Now, the second thing I'd say about that is, you know, as as we uh, as we care for them. We also want to care for the people that that do commit crime because, you know, like I said, I, I've done both law enforcement and chaplaincy uh, for and care for those that are incarcerated. But here's the power of this. I mean, just if you don't mind a little story. So so when I first got into I had been a, a prison chaplain, I'd been a police officer and I started as a clergy and got involved in this Kairos ministry, it's, which is like a weekend retreat. It's like a four-day Thursday through Sunday. The first one I was invited to, uh, I sat around with 34 men in a church, and we sat in a circle. And the leader of that group said, here, I want everybody to tell us why you're here. What are you doing here? And he said, let me start. He said, I, was, uh, I got involved in this um, because my – uh, you know, I feel like that, 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 that there are people out there that committed crime, but they really need Christ. He said, I got involved in the Kairos ministry. He said, but my son was, had got involved in drugs. He was, uh, you know, had all kind of rebellion issues. He ran away from home. We didn't know where he was for several years. He finally came home in his 20s and, and went through N.A. He went through A.A., and he got his life back in order. He started working at this little burger hut. He started trying to get his life back together. He said he was coming out one night, and and uh, he was robbed and shot dead right there, just at the at the cusp of life and the cusp of getting his life back together. He said they caught the perpetrator. They put him in prison. He went to Rayford, which is a big federal, you know, big prison in Florida. He said. Um, 
He said he got he was involved in the prison ministry, but he but he said I will never go see this guy. He said I I I hate so much what he did. I hate him, and I will not go to see him. Well, about a year later, uh, he was in, he was asked to serve on that on a team in Rayford, and he, he said I he said I'm I'll go, but on one condition that I don't have to ever see this guy that killed my son. And uh, and so he went to this prison team. He went on this retreat. He was leading uh, these inmates into the Lord and through these talks and, and and music and and ministry and sacraments. And and during that weekend, God spoke to him and said, "You need to go see him." And he said, "I went to see him once. Then I went to see him the next month." He said that was three years ago, and that that man is is now like my son. We, we have a relationship. He said, I've forgiven him. He said, I, we, we have a love and a Christ together. Wow. And, and, and so, you know, that, that power of the Lord. And, and so I went on that weekend excited. I went seeing, looking for what God would do to transform lives from crime to Christ. And, and the last day of the retreat, this is my piece of that story. I, I was gathered around with all these men, 34 men that, that came with me. We trained, we, we sung, we let, had sacraments together, and all the inmates that, were, that, that had gone through the retreat, many of them had accepted the Lord, uh, just transforming Christ experiences. So we're, we're in this circle singing arm in arm, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place, you know, and I can see his glory on each face, you know, we're singing this song, and, and the person next to me is, is a dear friend of mine, he's a deputy sheriff, and, uh, and, and we're just singing, and, and he, he, at, you know, he takes his head, and he motions me to look across the room at these two guys, one inmate and one guy from the outside, that are just arm in arm, they're just hugging on each other, they're singing, and they're just praising the Lord together. And I said, oh, you know, that's nice, that's nice, you know, it's, oh, that's cool, yeah. But we're all kind of doing that. And, and at the end, uh, after we finished the singing, uh, the deputy sheriff, who's a buddy of mine, he, he came to me and says, you know who those two guys were? And I said, yeah, we had an inmate, and you had one of our guys. He said, he said no. He said the inmate had been sentenced to life in prison. And the guy that he was hugging was the judge who sentenced him there. You think about the power of what Jesus can do to, to move in the lives of people. It's not by excusing. It's by, by providing the proper framework of the public and private ethic, the, the three estates, it's by properly and appropriately and faithfully following God's plan to apply the gospel to these folks' lives. And when you do that, power, power happens. Uh, and it, but it doesn't happen if we just, you know, we just kind of follow our emotions and, and, and don't really think through how God wants us to partner uh, with uh, with fellow Christians in our to in our personal lives and to partner with the legitimate God ordained ministers of the state to ensure that we are you know putting in front of folks you know here's what happened here's what you did now now here's the gospel here's the gospel 
that can transform you uh, from death to life and make you new in him. We can't get there by just by just thinking that that you know some way wishing away that Jesus somehow dismantled the the adjudication process that the power will only come when we follow properly uh you know where we're going what a powerful story you know recently i was listening to some interviews uh and reading some articles about uh certain political forces within our country that are are really uh set on dismantling the structures of our country and two different instances. One was a speech that was being given uh, by a Supreme Court justice who said that um, his fear of what was going on was that these institutions that are there that actually hold society together, uh, that there's a desire to remove those institutions. And it was, it was a frustrating thing for him. The other was an op-ed piece writing about um, Dianne Feinstein and how uh, the individual was frustrated with Dianne Feinstein because she seemed to be more committed to the institution of American government than getting certain th- policies passed. And, um, you know, the uh, Justice Clarence Thomas was the Supreme Court justice who is, is, is very much on the conservative end. Obviously, um, Dianne Feinstein is on the liberal end. And I'm not making a political point, but showing that here are two people that have very different political philosophies and philosophies of government. And yet there are two people that, um, you know, are, are somehow being criticized for holding to the structures of that, of that government. And so we've hit on some very important areas and I hope our listeners have built a, a little bit more vocabulary on, uh, Christian philosophy as it concerns capital punishment. You know, we're looking at some areas. You gave a great illustration of how rubber meets the road in terms of the judge that sentenced someone to life in prison is also ministering to those that the institution and his obligation to the institution uh, place that individual there, but then also privately comes and ministers to those individuals. And the difference between the public ethic and the public responsibility and the private ethic and the private responsibility and where they converge is really important. As Anglican clergy, what are some ways that we can live that out in our sacramental life? And one way that I'm thinking about, and you know, we we obviously live out a life in a pro-life stance in the Anglican Church in North America. And that may seem contradictory to some people. So how do we practically live out being, uh, you know, submissive to a state that is exercising the God-given pronouncement of capital punishment in order to protect the weak, in order to make sure that there's uh, lawfulness and not lawlessness, uh, and yet have the compassion that, that you're talking about? I think first understanding exactly what we just have been talking about, that there is a, there is a difference between the public and private ethic and, and being able to, to be conversant in them and, and then begin to apply our lives and our sacramental life as persons and as ministers into both of those directions. Like we just talked about with the judge able to, to 
exercise his responsibilities while also personally being involved in in uh, in restitution and helping somebody uh, know Christ better. Um, one of the things that that I'd have to say is a lot of these issues we've talked about, capital punishment, a life of the unborn, these are moral issues. They are moral, um, ethical. The, the, the difference between those two is ethics really is a construct uh, designated between particular groups. So there's like a, a financial ethic, there's bioethics, there's military ethics. And so ethics are constructs within a particular organization, whereas morals tend to, to be more long-term formed by, uh, by God, by more eternal products, more eternal processes. Um, the, in the United States and America and a lot of different locations, uh, these being moral issues, we've lost the ability to have moral conversations because we, we can't we can't agree uh, on these particular the framework, the foundations of these moral issues because we we make decisions based on our walk with the Lord, based on the Holy Scripture. Well, in a secular society, doesn't do that, and the more secular society has become the more divergent our ability to be able to have these conversations. So we've descended to the lowest denominator uh, on the planet, which is politics, to, to, to debate these issues. And, and I think that's one of the things that you're talking about is these are moral issues, but, uh, but in the larger secular society, we've descended to politics to try to uh, browbeat everyone else to get our way. We need to, first of all, discern what is truly a moral issue and what, following the scripture, tradition, and reason, what, what is God's guidance? You know, did God abrogate that particular law to Israel? Did God, did God you know, what, what, how do we follow a decision matrix that helps us? And then the, the other pieces of that is what are the, What's on the ground that, that helps us operationalize that? I think one of the biggest issues that we struggle with, you know, people that, that have disagreed with capital punishment, you know, have, have done so because they don't trust our legal system. They, they don't trust the ability of our legal system any longer to actually adjudicate the right guy. That, that the reason they don't, this is what I've heard from many people in, in the, their articulations is, is they don't feel like the justice system, you know, kind of like the just mercy. If you've seen that marvelous movie that does help us to see the many flaws in our own system, uh, that that w when you assign someone to capital punishment to the death penalty, was that the right person? You know, what did we follow just and right uh, processes? Was was it um, impartial um, um, investigation? Or were there prejudices involved? And so, so there are some real legitimate concerns about making sure that we are, as a country, as a legal system, as states and as federal legal systems, are we following the right processes? I, my, my daughter is in the, a, a master's program here at Marymount in forensic and legal psychology, and she's got the stories of 
of people being wrongly adjudicated using a particular interrogation technique called the, the read technique, which allows for for investigators to lie to, to suspected perpetrators. You know, it's like, is that moral? Is that legal? Is that ethical? You know, so so we have legitimate concerns that that are are, are our investigations finding the right person. So so there's a lot of reasons that that call us to you know have concern we do have to acknowledge at the end of the day as biblical christians that 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 these are realities of justice and rightness uh, that keep a society from going off the deep end uh, and i would use here's what i would use uh canon zach i would use the analogy of the body a body uh, is constructed of skin and muscle sinew organs and a framework called a skeleton. The skeleton has to be hard and rigid and unyielding, unbending in order for the muscles and the organs to be able to do their work. Otherwise, if we were just organs, let's you know let's say the organs are like if you if you want to use the three estates, the organs would be like the the church, the, the heartbeat uh, of a society, um, and the muscles uh, that, that play against that you know, are our people. That muscles have to have hard bones to pull against, to move. If, if you didn't have the rigidity, the unyielding, unbending bone, you're just going to be a pile of muscle and organs wreathing on the ground, not able to operate or go anywhere. And, and we have to have that, that unyielding rigidity of the law to be able to uh, have leverage as a fulcrum to be able to move effectively and thrive as a society. That's a really good, really good way of illustrating it, because when we do see the arguments of people saying things like, well, I can't agree with capital punishment because I can't be sure that the system is sure, um, you know, we're, we're getting into a category fallacy uh, area there. Um, we need to reform the system in order to make sure that capital punishment is carried out uh, properly. That's right. And that's where you say, well, what do we do? Where does the rubber meet the road? Get involved. Yes. Get involved yes. in ensuring that the law's DNA, that 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 uh, the peace model, as opposed to the read technique, you know that that various uh, that various investigative techniques gets the right guy, not the wrong guy. Don't you can't just throw rocks, you know, at society because you disagree uh, on a feeling level. You have to have you have to get involved to to care for the law enforcement officer who's out on the front lines protecting you uh, at the expense of his own family. You know, he's, you know, we, we have a military analogy, you know, where we, we go into harm's way across the pond and we up armor, we put our body armor on and we go into danger. We leave our family in security. Well, a police officer, they put their body armor on and they walk out into danger in their own neighborhood. And, That's right. and they and their family is in their neighborhood. Their family is in their AOR. Yes. And they, these guys and gals are brave, and and they need to be, uh, you know, prayed for. There are bad there are bad ones out there. Um, and so getting involved in ensuring that we have the right selection process, 
the right um, methods of determining uh, appropriate. And one of the other pieces, having been in law enforcement and, and help, is law enforcement has become the only 911 agency that society has for everything. Mental health, homelessness. We have dismantled systematically the mental institutions, the places where where people could get the help. We've dismantled every other stable place that could help people. And the only thing we have left is law enforcement. And they are that that's not what they're there for. They're we've overburdened them with with things that 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 they're just it's just not their role. And and having been on those calls, it's hard for them. So we need to support them. We need to support um, the the inmates. My daughter is is working at the Fairfax County Sheriff's Office in the STAR program. She's trying to help support inmates. She's getting clothes for for inmates trying to get out on the street, making sure they have birth certificates, social security cards, so they can get a job, a place to stay. These are heroic folks that are trying to. Do what Jesus said. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. These are people in our society that we need to love on and come alongside and support because we want safe societies. We, we don't want people to resort to crime. And, uh, and so getting involved in any and all aspects of supporting these civil authorities who are ministers of God doing the job that they have to do and they're going to be held accountable too. We want them to be cared for and loved on. I'm going to say a few things, and and for our, our listeners' benefit, tell me if if I'm on target or or if I'm off target. And that is number one: um, Canon Marshall and Canon Zach do not want anyone to die from capital <laughs> punishment. Mm-mm, no, it is right. not. It is not our desire. Is that is that fair to say? That's that's absolutely uh, fair to say. And I will say that we are 100% mortality rate among human beings. But yes, but in terms of of those things, you're correct. Yes, and it is um, very important to point out that you and I believe in a difference between killing and murder. That killing correct. is a different thing than premeditated murder. For example, you know, someone might say, well, how can you have a pro-life stance and be supportive of capital punishment? Well, um, killing a child in the womb is murder. Killing uh, a person who has been convicted of a capital offense is punishment. And there's a vast difference between the two. Fair enough? Yeah, there is a vast difference between the two. And also, if you run through the rubric, the biblical rubric, you come out. Following the early church and the scripture, you know, that the life of an unborn has, has always been understood as a brephos in Greek, which is a baby, even in the womb. So the early church, the Didache, uh, they all were, were supportive of life. This particular situation, this is that's the thing that capital punishment is a very specific situation that that God has said, OK, on this one. I'm delegating to humanity. That's the only one. This is it. Um, and that was specifically done. And you can tr- trace it all the way from the Old Testament through the New into the patristics and all the way to the present. That's the one kind of exception. Canon Marshall, it has been so good 
to have you back on the show. Thanks for taking time to be with us today. Well, thank you for, for honoring me to, to, to let me be able to, to share this journey with you. And uh, if you don't mind, would you mind me uh, offering a, uh, a prayer? Uh, it's in our Book of Common Prayer. Uh, that would be wonderful. Uh, it's on page 654, and it's a prayer for the courts of justice. So uh, let us pray. Almighty God, you sit on your throne giving righteous judgment. We humbly ask you to bless all courts of justice, all magistrates in this land. Give them a spirit of wisdom and understanding that fearing no power but yours alone, they may discern the truth, impartially administer the law through him who shall come to be our judge, your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Classic Anglican Podcast. We look forward to being with you during our next episode. To learn more, join us online at www.anglicanchaplains-etf.org. Until then, stay strong in the Christian faith once received and keep Anglicanism classic.